This is part two of my interview with Dr. B.J. Fogg, author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. If you haven't listened to part one yet, stop, download, and listen to that first. Then tell some friends about it. Share it on social media. In part two, we talk about how success breeds success, like the title says, the small changes that change everything. So you should have your patients work on the habit that they find most important first before you get to the habits that you find most important for them. The first priority should be demonstrating to them that they can change and they can be successful. We also discuss how positive emotions help to encode habits, and he actually came up with a technique to make ourselves feel success after we've performed an act that we want to repeat. We end by talking about the habits that he's still working on himself. Now, if you have questions for Dr. Fogg, please email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com as he has agreed to do another interview with crowdsourced questions from physicians. Again, he can be found at bjfogg.com, that's fog with two Gs, and tinyhabits.com. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. A lot of the other podcasts that are out there and stuff that ends up on the cover of magazines is... And, and ends up getting discussed among physicians as well is, is paleo the best diet? Is keto the best diet? Should I be recommending intermittent fasting? And I think all that dogma is really aimed at like the 1%, right? The 1% of the population that is already, already exercising, already fit, and they're trying to get fitter, already doing these things. But that's not our patients, right? That's not who we really need to help. We need to help people make these small changes that then accumulate over time because they're also, you know, it's, to your to your point, they're stickier. These big changes are just not, unless you're the one in a million that that has that epiphany. And so that other maxim of yours is help people, you help people by feeling, getting them to feel good. And there was there was an article in, in the Huffington Post a few years ago about uh, there were a number of patients that felt they were fat shamed by their doctors, right? They, they, they find every doctor's visit onerous because whatever they're coming in for, the doctor inevitably makes it about their weight. Then they end up feeling bad. This authority figure has made them feel bad about themselves. So your maxim is help people to feel, feel good. Successful. Feel, successful. feel successful. Feel successful. Feel successful. Yeah, that's very carefully worded. Well, let me let me say something kind of controversial. Are you okay with that? Yes, please. Bam. Okay. So these programs that you talk about, and then we'll get to fat shaming here in a minute. The programs and the covers and the bloggers uh, who are misleading people are, I think, being evil. I'll just say it. They're being evil. And I, I'm struggling a little bit with my own ethical responsibility of calling those people out, okay? Because they're misleading people. Or even like, and when I read about this, see this TV show or see this article, I, I just cringe. It's like, no, this will not work for everyday people. And in fact, there is a book out that has now sold over a million copies, huge, huge seller that on the cover claims to have a proven way to break bad habits on the cover. In the book, he doesn't deliver that, but the book is sold massively. Now, a million people have been misled about breaking bad habits. 
they've been let down and now they're blaming themselves. So, and it's, you can easily find this book. Now, do I, as a researcher, step up and say, no, people, you've been misled. Do I raise awareness that this is misleading you? And this person that wrote the book is incredible at marketing and he continues to do this. But I have a book and people are going, oh, you're just, you know, you know, this is because you have a book. Well, no, I think I have an ethical responsibility. So I'm kind of stuck right now. So it's, yes, we have uh, things in the media that people pay attention to because it is the dream, but it's unrealistic. We've got bloggers writing books, deeply misleading people about things that matter so much and damaging them. And then... Ah, what do I do about that? So, Cal, if some of you have insight, let me know. But now you know how all of us feel every time there's another coronavirus YouTube video or article that goes viral that is just full of misinformation. And then, you know, all our patients are bringing it up. It's on social media. We're constantly having those conversations because it's what people want to hear. Like I've got this easy fix. And as much as your point with tiny habits is you're doing, you're, you're, helping people do what they want to do, and you're making them feel successful, it's still small habits that accumulate over time, which is not the same as the epiphany moment that it's every your life is going to change tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And it's not magic. It is a process. And I'm very careful in the book not to say be patient. But guess what? Be patient. It's like planting a garden because I learned that nobody wants to hear be patient. But I say it's a process. It's a process. Like, out here, so here in Maui, I do have a garden. And the fact that we're going to be here for a long time because of coronavirus, it's like, okay, I'm going to be a little more serious about my garden. And, you know, you just do what you need to do with the seeds and the sprouts and replanting them. And you know, you're going to have the result. You cannot force it to grow. It's not magic. It's a process. And you just do the right process. And that's kind of what Tiny Habits is. Though people are looking for that quick fix miracle, and that's what this blogger guy knows, is put the right phrase on the cover and he'll sell millions. But back to fat shaming, that is, I kind of use that as an example in the book a little bit. The I don't have like a magical answer for that, except go back to the maxims. I mean, this person in front of you and this really helps me. I, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but I do help a lot of people, whether it's my students or just, you know, just even helping one of my Stanford students progress. It's here's this human being. What do they already want to do? How do I help them feel successful? And as long as I'm doing those two things, I feel like I'm on very solid ethical ground. Now, I don't manipulate people. I don't tell them fake things about them to make them feel successful. I think what is the most, and this might be really helpful. What is the most positive, true thing I can say to this patient about their health and how they're managing the health. Even if, and this might be controversial, even if that leaves undone or unsaid something else, and because I haven't done research on this, but my sense is you are helping that patient way more by pointing out the most positive, true thing rather than saying, guess what? Your weight can be a real problem, right? Because once they feel like I'm succeeding and I can change, they will then step up and do the bigger and harder things. That's the process. You want can, you can unlock that in them. Would it make sense to maybe then sidestep that issue, right? Sidestep something that's as emotionally charged as their weight because it's not like they don't know it, right? They know it, they're reminded of it every moment of every day. 
So maybe find something else that they want to do to teach them the tiny habits method. And then that starts the snowball effect, right? Then they, they changes their self-talk without the flashpoint. Oh, it's about my weight again. And then you're alienating them, right? They're not necessarily going to trust you as much as they otherwise would because you've brought up this thing again and you're just one of them. Yeah. And this is, so I don't work with obese or morbidly obese, but I have coaches I've trained in tiny habits. So we have about 200 coaches who we've trained thoroughly and some of them do work on weight issues and they affirm that's the approach. Like even when somebody comes to them and says, I want to lose weight, it's like, great. We're going to first work on what do you want? Creativity or tidiness or relationships. We're going to start somewhere else. And then they learn the skills of change. They learn the tiny habits method. And then when they are more prepared, having these skills, then they step up. It's just like, oh, we're going to play all these little simple songs on the piano. Once you've mastered more skills, then we're going to step up to Stairway to Heaven or a concerto or something like that. And so that ends up, my coaches tell me who work in this, exactly the right approach. And it's surprising to their clients at first. It's like, wait, what about my diet? What about my exercise? Like, no, 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 don't worry about that, right? We're just going to help you in some other areas. Pick the area of your life that you want to optimize. Is it tidiness? Is it relationships? And so on. And it's absolutely true that change leads to change. If you help people start changing in one area, they then are much more capable of changing in these other areas that are more emotionally distressing. And they've struggled with it for so long. And the thing about a physician or any provider or anybody in a position of authority and expertise. So in toward the end of the book, and I didn't want to put this in, Brad, because it's so powerful, but then my editors read it in some of my notes and I'm like, you're putting it in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this can be totally, th- this could be bad because people think so. He, so there's this thing, the most powerful feedback you can give somebody has two characteristics. It's on a topic they care about and it's in an, in an area where they're uncertain. So let's say a new mom is with you in clinic. She's cares about being a good mom and she's uncertain. So that overlap, and so in the book, I draw these two circles, that overlapping area, any feedback you give that mom is gonna be super powerful. So if you say like, wow, you're doing a great job as a mom, she's gonna go home and brag about that. If you say, man, you just really, there's a mom class, a mothering class we want you to take, she's gonna be crushed. So that's that, and so I call that the power zone, that overlap. Now there's one circle I didn't include, and that is the source of the message. So it's really three circles, like Venn diagram, the source. If the source is trusted, then it's even more powerful. And physicians are that. So I hate to make your clinical visits even, it shouldn't be more stressful. I'll put it this way. You have more <laughs> opportunity. The feedback, the, po- the positive, true feedback you give your patients may be Certainly, it'll be the best thing they hear all day. It may be the best thing they hear all month or all year. They'll remember it. So your physicians and other people in authority and other people that are highly trusted have this opportunity to help people feel good about themselves. And that's a great opportunity to do. So, you know, what's the most positive, true thing you could say and say it? There's something also that can make people feel good that you discuss in your book. And I I can't believe we haven't, uh, I haven't brought it up yet, but working at Stanford, 
you have access to right some of the top minds in the country. So you took advantage of that and invented a word. Right. <laughs> I, I've invented a few words, but I think I know the word you're talking about. Yeah. So and I so that ties into help people feel successful, but not, but but it it helps to encode the behavioral change if you can get people to do it. And I am the last person in the world to do the the celebration technique that you described because I just don't have that. I dial my enthusiasm up for the podcast, but I'm just, I'm more of like a wallflower. I don't, I'm not a celebration type person. Yeah, I'm not a I think fist I can pumping type person. Here. I think I can help you. Okay, Please. so let's start with the word and remind me how exactly I'm going to help you. I think that'd be answer. And I wish I'd put more of this part in the book. So the feeling, so first of all, it's not repetition that creates habits. And the people saying that are misleading you. Just look at the research they're citing. It correlates with strength of habit. It does not cause the habit to form. Bam. And this big million selling book gets it wrong and lots of people get it wrong. But just go look at the research. Even reading the abstract shows you it was a correlational study, not causation. And it's always a different number. It's 12, it's 28, it's 99, it's 10,000. It's always a different number. So yes. So that, that, yeah. That's one of the big, and it really changes how people look at habit formation process if they believe it's repetition. But I won't go down that thread. Instead, I want to go down this one about the, the thing that does wire in habits is the emotion you feel when you do the behavior or immediately after. In other words, it's reinforcement. And you know this with your dogs, with your kids, with using a new product that you love, like you use a new app and oh my gosh, it makes you feel awesome. Guess what? You know, it's much more likely you're going to use that. And that idea that emotions create habits is so important that I made it a chapter title. I didn't want anybody to miss that idea. And it's radical. But again, it's sort of like this, you know, hidden in plain sight. Once you see it, it becomes obvious. But it turns out that, well, the academic world of emotions right now is a mess. They can't even define emotions. So I won't go down that rat hole. But the emo there's various emotions that can help wiring habits, pleasure, relief, uh, uh, humor, but the one that you can hack in yourself is the feeling of success. There's in, in tiny habits, we call it celebration. There's ways you can say, I did a good job. And that feeling of success is in the tiny habits method, what you use to uh, supercharge the speed of habit formation. And the better you are at feeling successful as you do the new habit, like flossing or doing push-ups or you know, feeding the cat, the faster the habit will form. Now, I stumbled across the technique in my own life. I didn't read all the literature and say, oh, therefore, here's what we do. It was, it was a happy accident. And then it was years later, I was like, okay, I know this works. I know it works for other people, this technique, but I don't know why it works. I have a sense. So I dug into the literature and this is the only part of the book that isn't based on my own research because I'm not an emotions expert, but I'm one one building away at Stanford from the world's expert in this. So I gave him a call and uh, said, here's what we're doing and here's what's working, what's going on. And he's like, straightforward, it's reinforcement. You are upregulating a positive emotion and through that you are reinforcing behavior. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought because I got in the weeds studying all this you know, neuroscience and all this complicated stuff. And, and that emotion, that feeling of success, I kept reading that I called other emotions experts, does not have a name. So we're getting to your question, Brian. It has no name. It had never been named. 
And so after calling uh, four who I think are world-class experts on emotions, they're very nice to talk to me. And one of them is a huge fan of naming emotions. I said, okay, we get to name it. So the name of that when you feel successful, you do something like you pull something out of the oven and it smells awesome. You see you got the top score in an exam. You put a long putt and it goes in. That emotion is now called shine. Shine is the name for the emotion of feeling successful. So to maxim number two, helping your patients feel successful, you can also think about it helps your patients feel shine. And I love the fact, well, I was surprised there wasn't a name for it, but I love the fact that now there is a name for it. And we can talk about design for shine and that shine is the thing that if people don't feel shine when they do a new behavior, it does not become a habit. It does not. But if they feel it intensely, it will become habit very, very quickly. And that's also for bad habits as, as well as good habits. It goes both ways. So what are some examples of celebrations that can help you feel shine for like a, a curmudgeon like me who's not going okay, go to want to do a little dance or fist pump <laughs> or he's going yeah. to feel ridiculous doing it? I love this. I, lo- I love this question. So in Tiny Habits, I talk about this. There's exercises for it and there's a hundred different ways to do it. But the curmudgeonly approach is to think about a purpose that's very, very important to you and align the behavior you're doing with achieving that purpose. And let me give an example. For me, it's very, very important that I teach my work about how behavior change happens. I mean, that's what my life is about, not just my career, my life. And so if I can't pour a glass of water, you know, as a habit of drinking more water and go good for me or do a little dance or give myself a high five, if that feels hokey, then think, by pouring this glass of water, I'm going to have more energy and more optimism, and I'm going to be a better teacher today at my lab meeting. So you align it. So notice that's still helping you feel successful. You're not doing it in some showy way. You're just connecting that behavior with succeeding. And I'm getting chills again because it's so important. With succeeding in something that really deeply matters to you. So it's that connection of here's this behavior and here's my higher purpose and actively think of that. Actively think of that as you do the thing you want to become a habit. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a bodily movement, although that is a simpler thing for for us to recommend to our to our patients but think think about the the goal that they're working towards or or the effect that it's going to have and yeah. that positive feeling of working towards that effect yeah, and, or and, that outcome. And, yes, and, and I'd phrase it or think about it as more than a goal. It's like, what is my life about? And how does this new behavior that I want help me achieve that? So I, now, one of my colleagues, Vic Strecker, who's at University of Michigan, this is his thing, his purpose. And it was two years ago, he's sitting on a, my lanai right here in Maui, and he's talking about his research and the brain imaging studies and I was like, crap, Vic, this sounds like celebration. And so that's what tuned me into, oh, here's a different way of celebrating. And it's a little more rational and it doesn't require cheerleading or, you know, singing a song. And, and it still maps to the importance of shine or helping people feel successful. And so it, it, it totally fits. Now, what's coming up soon 
uh, I'm hoping we launch within two months, is a study that looks at these different kinds of celebrations and compares the, I don't even have the wording yet for it, but the uh, connection to purpose compared to other types of celebration and seeing how, and this would be a true experiment. That's what I do is true experiments to see uh, the effects of that versus no celebration at all. So simplest study be through conditions, no celebration. Other one, they pick a celebration. So the way to pick a typical celebration is, you know, what if a piece of paper, I'll just say it this way. If you're watching a football game and your team wins at the last second, what do you do at that moment? That's a natural celebration. That versus the connecting with purpose. So it would be no celebration, your natural celebration, and then the vivid connection with purpose and do a three-condition study and see what happens. Which one's most effective? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I love that you you tied in your methodology, especially since we're a physician audience. So we love to hear like how the experiments get set up so that you end up with these, these findings. I would love to to talk more about your your research, like this, the studies themselves, though, I, I think will... And here's another study that I think is even easier, so we might do it faster. It's when the kind of habits coach, coach, so people sign up for the five-day program and then they get a coach and all this, uh, which is great. I, I'm saying all this like it's, it's a huge deal. We're helping hundreds, thousands of people a month and so on. One of the things that we want to do is get, give the coaches phrases that will help their habiteers. The habiteers are the people doing, you know, they're the novices to re think of themselves in a new way. So instead of saying good job this week or good job on flossing a tooth, it's like, good job. You're showing evidence that you can change. Notice that tiny little addition. And what we want to come up with is a list of phrases that are not just positive, but they're positive and they have an implication for an identity change. It helps you go, yeah, wow, my tiny habits coach says, I'm showing evidence that I can change. And then I want to compare that, you know, just a regular good job way to go with coaches who then use the identity shifting phrase and see the difference. So that is uh, another study that uh, hopefully is coming soon. So I, in your book, you refer to the habit ninjas. Now, I grew up <laughs> in the 80s, so I think I would have referred to them as habit Jedi. And Ooh. of the habit Jedi, you are, you are the Yoda of the habit Jedi, <laughs> right? So is there anything that the Yoda of habits is working on right now for himself, right? Yes. You mentioned some of the things that, you, that you've done in the past in yes. your book, but is there anything that you're actively struggling with for yourself to, to integrate into? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the way it feels from my perspective is, you know, when you, behavior changes a skill, it's a set of skills. And I map those out in the book. And the, the more skilled you are, the easier it is to do stuff. And so think of it in some ways like driving. When you first were learning to drive, it was scary. It seemed hard. Now you just get in the car and go from point A to point B. You don't even think about it. Well, that's what it feels like once you develop the skills of change. It's like, oh, I want to do this. Boom, boom, done. It's like no drama, no big deal. You may not be perfect. And that's part of the method. It's like, oh, I've got to make some adjustments. Just like you're driving someplace, you might take a wrong turn. You get back on track. But there are some habits that are challenging. And let me share one. So but before I get to the challenges, but that means I've transformed my personal life. I've transformed my health. I'm much healthier than I was 10 years ago. I live in Maui at least half the year. Now it's full time. 
I've transformed my career, just on and on. And it's not like any big moves. It was just a whole bunch of little things I did that got me here. And I don't often talk about that. And I certainly don't post on Instagram or Facebook because I know it just makes people unhappy to hear that. But that's what can happen. Um, I'll get to a specific habit that has been a challenge, and it's using the foam roller for myofascial release. <laughs> <laughs> really, that need you need to integrate. That feels so good. It's such uh, positive reinforcement in and of itself. I need to reconceptualize what that pain means. Oh, but, right. Okay. You use, it, you use it differently than I do. <laughs> yeah, that is challenging because, and I know it, because it's painful. I don't like it. Now, I do it, oh, I would say half the time, but it's not totally wired in as a habit because it's painful. So things that are painful or embarrassing or make you feel less than do not wire in as habits, no matter how many times you repeat them. So the foam roller, what I do now, the habit is to take the foam roller and put it on my couch. <laughs> so then when I'm hanging out with my partner watching TV, I look at the foam roller and I either move it or I use it. And some days it's like, okay, I did my habit. I moved, you know, the, so the habit is putting it on the couch, not foam rolling. So uh, will it then evolve into a habit where I'm always foam rolling? Maybe not because it's painful. And those kinds of things don't become, now you can get yourself to do it, but a habit is something that you do automatically without thinking. And we don't do that with painful things. So that's one that I continue to play around with. Meditation is also a very challenging habit, but I was, I'm able to nail it, but it shifts for me. Uh, at one time, meditation habit came after I empty my inbox, I would meditate for three breaths. Cause that was, I looked, Brad, I looked for, probably a year. Where does this fit in my life? And finally, weirdly enough, it's after I empty my, not my inbox, that's after I empty my spam folder, then I meditate. Oh, okay. <laughs> empty I my know, inbox. Right? I am never, officially never meditating. Yeah. But, but then it's, it's shifted. And then, well, when you're, lo then when we came to Maui, I'll go to the recently, like when your location shifts, your habit shifts. So when I'm in California, it's one thing here in Maui, I play, uh, a flute in the morning. We get up really early, like 4.30. So I close everything up and I play the flute. And for me, that's a meditation. And then last week that shifted. I've just gotten kind of fascinated with my heart rate. So I have one of these, you know, oximeters that you yep. put on your finger. And now for the last week, the meditation is to just watch my heart rate and kind of breathe in alignment. And so that might become, and so I think this is a good example of how do a habit and it can, it can evolve and that's okay. I mean, think of your habits as a garden. You don't always want the same thing. So you evolve it to serve you more and more. And then someday I may be back to the, the flute meditation and, and so on. And it's, it's, really, it's really exciting actually to know that your, your habits will evolve you don't have to do something just because years ago you said you're going to like meditate after you empty your spam folder that it will evolve as your needs evolve and that's the right way to think about habits well this has been an incredible conversation i really appreciate you taking the time you're in beautiful maui right now thank goodness the uh the hurricane you know yeah. avoided the <laughs> avoided the island everybody's okay yeah. um so where can people find your book and where can people find your ongoing research? The book was in airports. 
you're probably not going to airports. It was also in Costco. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, just you know, buy it at your usual places. If you can buy it at a local bookstore, that's great. Yeah. The audiobook has a special preface where I talk about my voice disability. So I have a special preface there. And some people really like the audiobook. Yeah, that's what I did. I heard. I heard it was it reminded me of uh, Brene Brown, right? Vulnerability. You started with just this thing that really human, right? Because you're now this this Yoda of habits, um, <laughs> where where ever the stars have aligned. But you you show how it all started with with struggle. The, the struggle I had as uh, as a teenager. In fact, Brad, when I wrote that, you know, so I recorded, you know, I did the narration, and I wrote this. Uh, the last day in the studio here and I went and read it to my partner and I was like, uh, I'm going to read this to you. And I just started crying and I cried three different times. I just broke down and I was like, I need, and then it was like, okay, now I can show up at the studio and read this and maybe I won't cry throughout it. But yeah, sharing, that was a big risk for me, but I think it has helped a lot of people see Absolutely. that despite how, how much you feel like your body is against you or the chips are stacked against you or that you are stuck. There are ways to get unstuck and it doesn't really make sense in the print version. because I'm talking about my voice, but yeah, people can get the book tinyhabits.com to do the free five day program or to find out about how to get, you know, deeply trained and certified in this physicians more and more are attending my boot camp, which is 16 hours of training. That's tiny goes above and beyond the book. In fact, this morning I had two physicians on a call and one of them, it was kind of sad and funny that, and he's from Ireland, got a great accent, where last week he emailed me and said, oh my gosh, I now see for 20 years, I've been doing exactly the wrong thing to help my patients change. <laughs> and he's on a mission to just at least change what's going on in Ireland in that regard. So the bootcamp might be something, you know, bjfog.com and I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, but I don't do much. People follow me. I have no idea why they follow me. But <laughs> but it, the usual places, you know, BJ Fogg's a nice, weird name. And so you can find me in lots of places. And it's F-O-double-G. F-O-G-G. It's a nature name. I'm so glad it's nature. <laughs> so Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you. I've been I've been following your work for a long time. And I really, the book is incredible. And the physicians, if there's anyone listening who's involved in a medical school curriculum, you you have to include this in the curriculum. This, this has to be taught. Just, this has oh, to end up. Thank you. Brad, you doing this and helping physicians in this way is so important. Thank you so much for inviting me and keep up the good work. Way to go. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.